0: She's a native-born Texan. But she began. A... Sorry, sorry, is it on? Sherry, is it on? Okay. She began a new life in 1975 when the Lord pulled her from the miry pit and set her feet on the rock. The Lord Jesus. He gave her a new song to sing that others might come. See and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. She says she's been married for thirty-five sweet years to Mike Gagne, who is a physician that teaches ophthalmology residents at the University of Cincinnati. And they live in the Cincinnati area and fellowship at Northern Hills Bible Chapel, where Mike is an elder. They have four grown-up children and I like this, two sons in love, you. a daughter in love, and two delightful grandboys, Micah and Caleb, a little granddaughter, Josie, and two more grandchildren on the way in August and October. I have seen Vicky's other presentation, so I know how thoroughly she prepares for these dramatic presentations of women from ancient ages to the present age, and she presents these all around the country and internationally for over 19 years. She has had training, a private coach from um, CCM, Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. Her ministry of drama has given her the opportunity to share the gospel and encourage Christians in a little different way. And she's praying that the Lord will use this to touch hearts and lives for his glory. Most of you know and are familiar with the name Corey Ten Boom, and you probably know about some of her uh, writings and her life experience. Her family suffered greatly during World War II, when they sought to protect the Jewish people from the hatred of Adolf Hitler. Four members of the Ten Boom family gave their lives to hide the Jewish people in their homes, and Corrie and others in the family were imprisoned. When Corrie was released from Raven's book, Prison Camp, she began a worldwide ministry that would take her around the world over 64 countries and last some 33 years. Her message is one of God's love and forgiveness to all that would listen. Her sister Betsy told her while they were in Ravensbrook together that the world would listen to them because they had been through it. They had experienced it. They both learned that there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Her message is as true today as it was during World War II and decades. Vicki Gagne brings Corey Tenboom's message of God's love and forgiveness to us today. She portrays Corey in her own words and in appearance as Corey spoke and looked when she was 85 years old, or maybe 85 years young. Vicki has presented this program to a wide range of groups for some 13 years. So draw near and welcome. The amazing testimony of Corey Ten Boom when she lived through a very difficult time in history. Come and witness the hope that she learned through it all. Corey, would you come and speak to us now, please?
1: greeted them for 30 minutes (laughs) then I say to him may I please say goodbye to them (laughs) so I said goodbye for 30 minutes the Lord gave me 30 minutes to speak to those people the Lord is good is he not yes Yes. well my name is Cory Timbo and they call me a trap for the Lord I suppose it's because I've traveled over 60 countries in 30 years sharing about the love and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have slept in over 1,000 beds, from soft beds in palaces to hard beds in tribal huts. But I'm here to tell you a little bit about the most difficult time in my life, for it is in those difficult times that we learn much from the Lord, yes? My I was born on April 15, 1892, in Amsterdam, Holland, to Corrie and Cornelia and Casper ten Boom. Now, my papa was old-fashioned, and he had a long, white beard. And the children in our village, they loved him. They called him Opa. It means grandfather. And my father, the people would come to the shop to get advice from him, and he would open up the word of God. He said it was the most important book in our home. My papa said my mama had laughing blue eyes. And my mama loved everyone in the village, especially the poor, the neglected, and the sick. She was there and rejoiced with them at the birth of their children, and she was there at their death weeping with them. She sought to serve them, to care for them, to love them. But in our home, we had a box. It was a blessing box. And if you come visit us, she opened her arms up wide and said, Welcome. And she put a dime in for you. And if you were a very special guest, she put a dollar. And the money would go for emissions. There were five children in the Timboom family. My sister, Betsy, was the oldest. Betsy could make a party out of old potatoes and used tea bags. (laughs) Then there was my brother, William. He was the only one of the Tim Boone family who got an education, a college education. And I looked up to my brother. Then there was Hendrik. He died at six months of age of brain fever. Then there was Noli. She was the pretty one. And she never forgot her handkerchief. I always forgot my handkerchief. And then there was me. I was baby of the family. I was born one month too early. And they asked the Lord to save me, and he did. And when I was five years old, I asked the Lord to come into my heart. He did not say, you are too young. He simply came, and my Lord and I have worked together for these 80 years. The Lord is good. When I was a year old, my grandfather passed away, and we moved from Amsterdam to Holland to take over the watch shop and we moved into the Bay Ye, which was our home and our watch shop. There were three generations of watchmakers that lived in the Bay Ye. My grandfather was a watchmaker, my father was a watchmaker, and I was the first woman watchmaker in all in Holland. I was told that my grandfather had a love for the Jewish people. And in 1844, he began to hold prayer meetings for God's people, the Jewish people. And each generation began continued that prayer meeting. I have fond memories of my, the Beye. My mama's three sisters lived with us. So we were a large family, but we were a happy family. And we would gather around our large oval table, and we would laugh during the meals and share our days with one another. My papa would pray before the meal and after the meal. Sometimes he would have to pray after the meal For he had to ask forgiveness For we had gossiped during the meal (laughs) Around that oval table We also had our Bible studies And my papa had us to read the Bible In different languages In English and French and German And Dutch and Hebrew and Greek the Beyer was a place that was open to anyone who was in need. And my father saw that after World War I that the German children were in great need of care. They were malnutritioned and needed much care. So he arranged for watchmakers all over Holland to take the children into their homes. And we fed them and took care of them and sent them back to their homes where they were well. Many German children came throughout the Beyer in those post-war years. And we praise God for that time we had with them. Many years later, World War II began to rage in Europe. And oftentimes we would sit by the radio, and there came a man on. He did not speak, he did not yell, he would scream. And my sister would turn the radio off. I think you know who this man is. His name was Adolf Hitler, a man who sought to kill all the Jewish people and to take over the world. Now, we were a, a neutral country in World War I, so we thought we would be neutral in this country, in this war. The prime minister came on the radio to assure us that we would not be attacked by Germany. We would not be overtaken. I never see my father angry, but that night he was angry. He said, it is wrong to give hope when there is no hope. He said, I feel sorry for the Dutchman who does not know the Lord as his savior. For Holland will fall, but the Lord Jesus Christ will not fall. And then my papa leaned down and kissed each one of us on the forehead, and he went to bed. Sometime later, the bombs began to drop in Holland. And our boys fought for five days. But in the end, we were overtaken. And when we heard the news that Queen Wilhelmina and her cabinet had escaped the country. We knew it to be true that Holland was no longer a free country. I still remember the tanks of the Nazis as they came into our village and the marching of their boots on our cobblestone streets. Occupation was not so hard at first. They they set the curfew for 10 p.m., but later it was changed to 7 p.m. No one was allowed outside our home after 7 p.m. They began to issue ID cards And our Jewish friends had big black letter J and a star of David to identify themselves as a Jew. They began to issue ration cards. No one could buy anything unless you had a ration card. They confiscated our radios and I was able to hide one away that we might hear the news on the outside. (coughs) Newspapers no longer reported the news. And there became signs no Jews allowed, no Jews will be served. And then our Jewish friends began to disappear. Some were taken into hiding. Others disappeared no longer, taken no longer to be seen again. My mom and her three sisters had passed away by this time, and Noli and William had homes of their own, so it was just Papa Betsy and me at the Bayet. So we talked how we might help our Jewish friends if they came to us. My brother William was getting his Ph.D. at German University in 1926. It was then that he began to see the seeds of hatred placed against the Jewish people, and he wrote his thesis on it. And when people read their thesis, he laughed, they laughed at him. But he knew that he would have to get involved in the Dutch on the Quran. He said, "Cory, if you're going to do this work in hiding the Jews, you will have to come to a secret meeting of the Dutch Underground. So my nephew picked me up and we left after curfew to go to this secret meeting. And when we arrived, he began to introduce me to people. He said, there is Mr. Smith, and there's Mr. Smith, and there's Mrs. Smith, and there's Mr. Smith. I, I, I say to my brother, are they all related? <laughs> he said, no, Cory." He said, if you are ever arrested, you do not want to know the names of these people. We were told at this meeting that if we were going to hide the Jewish people, that we would have to have a secret room built into our home. So the next morning, a famous architect arrived at our home. His name was Mr. Schmidt. Laughter he was quite delighted to find the Beye were two houses that were built together. He said it will slow the Gestapo down. It confuses them. He said that the third, the third floor, would be, which was my room, would be where they would put the secret room. And they built a, a brick wall because when you knock on brick, it does not sound hollow. And then they plastered it to look as old as the rest of the walls. Two feet by eight feet, and everything of our Jewish friends were kept in there. There was an alarm system throughout the house. One was a buzzer was placed at the workshop, one at the front door, and one at the bay window. They wanted us to be able to have practice drills and to be able to get into the secret room in less than 60 seconds. We were able to get it down to 90 seconds. Now we would have... Oftentimes, they would have to have the drills all hours of the day and night. If you were sleeping, the mattress had to be turned over, for the Gestapo could feel the warmth where they were laying. If we were eating, all the utensils and extra food had to be taken into the hiding room with them. It was a difficult time. But I tell you, sometimes I would save the ration cards and I would buy cream puffs. And if they do a real good job, I give them cream puffs. <laughs> so sometimes they come to me and they say, Cory, don't you think it's time for a drill? <laughs> I think they like those cream puffs. <laughs> These were anxious times, but they were many happy times for us as well. We did not want our Jewish friends to think of what was going on outside of the Beheh. So we would read to one another, we would have lively discussions, we would have classes where they taught each other. We had a rabbi who my father and him loved each other and they would have this discussion going between them. How long we would be able to do this, we were not sure. The Gestapo was a block away. The Dutch police were 100 yards away. Nazis were everywhere. And I knew sometimes, somewhere, something would go wrong. Now, the work in the Dutch underground went very well for two years. And we heard, uh, got news that the Nazis were going to an orphanage and take 100 Jewish babies and going to kill them. So my boys say, we'll go and we'll rescue those babies. And they did it. I could tell her you want to know how they did it. In those days, there were Nazis who did not want to follow Hitler, and they would come to me and they say, Corey, can you help us? We do not want to kill the Jewish people. We do not want to follow Hitler. Can you help us? I say, sure, i help you. So I take their uniforms and give them civilian clothes, and then we hid them out for the duration of the war. Now, my boys took those uniforms, and they went and they got those 100 babies. Not even the workers at the orphanage did not know they were not Nazis. I praise God for that. The Lord is so good, is he not? February 28, 1944, I was sick and in bed. And there came a Dutchman into the shop, insisting upon talking to me. And so I got dressed, and I went down to see him. And he began to tell me that his wife had been arrested for hiding Jews in a room. He said, she is a good woman. He said, and there is a Gestapo that say, if I will give him 600 guilders, that he will release her. He said, but I don't have 600 guilders. And I say, what's 600 guilders for a good woman? I'll give you the money. And I gave him the money. That man was a quashling, a betrayer. A fellow Dutchman betraying his own fellow countrymen. Within hours, the Gestapo was there, and the Be- Beye was orated. My brother was there having Bible study with his family. Noli was there with her family. We had four uh, Jewish friends and two underground workers, and they were able to get into the secret room. The Gestapo found the ration cards, he found the radio, he found the telephone, but he did not find the secret room. They say, we will surround the Beye until they come out. No matter what they did to us, we did not tell them where the secret room was. At 11 o'clock, they took us to the, the Dutch police station. And my father sensed a betrayal, a sense of betrayal among us. And he asked the guard if he might have his Bible. And the guard brought his Bible, and he asked William if he would please read Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. And I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. When my brother finished reading, my papa prayed, And there was no longer a sense of betrayal among us, but one of trust, trusting the Lord. This psalm was read by my father at every beginning of every new year, but now it would take on a whole new meaning for us. The next morning, they began to load us into trucks to take us to the concentration camp there in Holland. And as they were helping my papa onto the truck, the guard, the the uh, Gestapo say you are a very old man. You will die in prison. He said, "But if you promise not to tie the Jews in your home, we will let you die in your home." But my papa said, "As long as I am in my home, it will be open to anyone who is in need of help." And they sat. They stood, looking at each other for a long moment. The arrogant young man, powerful with the handcuffs and my papa trusting, an old man trusting the lord later we arrived at the concentration camp my, they had a chair for my papa and I reached down and I kissed him on the forehead I said the lord be with you papa and he said the lord be with you my daughters then I heard him bless his grandson And then he said to him, we are a privileged family to be able to help God's people. My papa always used to say, the best is yet to be. And ten days later, the best had arrived for my father, for he set foot out of that prison and into heaven. I praise God for that. Because I was sick, I was placed in solitary confinement. I had never been alone before. I had always been surrounded by people. I could hear, I became very frightened. I could hear the muffled cries of those being tortured. And I could hear the bombs in the distance. And I say to the Lord, I am afraid. My, my faith is not strong enough. And then I see this little ant come across the floor. And I take my, my rag and I wipe it across his path. And he goes running to his hole. It was if the Lord said to me, Corrie, do you see that, Ant? His legs are weak like your faith is weak. But he goes running to his hiding place. Cory, I am your hiding place. You come running to me when you are afraid. I was 53 years old. but the first time, I realized that God's love his light is dark. Is brighter than that deep darkness that I was in prison there. He is good, is he not? Yes. While I was in solitary confinement, I received a package from Noli because she had been released earlier, and along the package, all the writing was was slanted towards the uh, stamp so I undid the stamp and looked underneath it and it said all the watches are safe <laughs> it was the cold to tell me that all those who were in the secret room were safe you see in those days there were Dutch policemen who were double agents so when the Gestapo got tired of guarding our home, our home They turned it over to the Dutch police. And when they were safe, they were able to get them out and take them to different places in the country. And I say, Praise God. For my grandfather's prayers were answered 100 years later on that very night when the the Lord saved them. Praise God. He is good. In June, we were transferred to another prison in Holland, and my sister and I were together again. And because I was a watchmaker, I was given the job of, of uh, the uh, radios for the airplanes, and I do a very good job. I take great pride in my work, until someone said to me, Corey, you, you know these radios are for the Nazi airplanes, and I say, oh. I tell you a little secret. <laughs> I did not do such a good job after that <laughs> The Lord is good The allies were getting closer And we were excited We were thought we were going to be rescued But one day they took all the men out On the men's side of the prison And they shot them all Then they took the women to the uh, the train station and put us on cars that would only hold 40 women. They put 80 of us in there. There was very little room. We could only stand up. Little water, little food, and very little air. When they shut those doors, I became afraid. And I say, Lord, please do not send us into Germany. I had heard the stories of German camps. And I was afraid for my sister, Betsy, and I. But when the Lord sends you somewhere, you'll go. And for three days and three nights, we went deeper and deeper into Germany. We finally arrived, and when they opened up the, the doors to the, the boxcars, we got out, and we, there were very few guards. They did not need very many, for we were weak women. And we followed them up. And I began to hear the whispers, it's Ravensbrück. It's Ravensbrück. It's an infamous, cruel camp in Germany. When we arrived, they they took away our names, gave us numbers. My sister was 66729, I was 66730. It was if we ceased to become human beings. They took everything away from us. But I had a Bible with this little Bible for Dutch underground workers and there was a satchel around my neck. And they stripped us of all our clothes. And I was able to hide that Bible behind our bench. And there we were stripped naked in front of these people, these men. I was, I could not believe it. But then I remember what my Lord Jesus when he was on the cross, he was stripped naked for me. And he died on the cross for my sins. And I praised God that I could do this for him. When they finished checking us in, I was able to get that Bible and put it around my neck. But then as we were leaving, I saw that the guards were, were checking every single person. And I began to pray, Lord, you must protect your word to bring it into this camp. You must send your angels. But then I remember angels are, the untr- are transparent. So I say, Lord, you must make your angels untransparent. <laughs> it's an orthodox way to pray, but my God liked it, for he answered my prayer.
0: <laughs>
1: they checked my sister in front and the woman behind me, but they did not see me. And again, they checked my sister and the woman behind me, but they did not see me. And I was able to bring the word of God into that camp. If you were caught with Bible, it was immediate death sentence for you. Then they took us to the barracks. There were barracks built for 400. They put 1,400 of us in the barracks. And I began to see the, the fleas and the lice jumping on their bed, and I began to cry to, to Betsy. I say I cannot be here. She said, but we need to thank God for these fleas and these lice. And my sister was right. Because the guards would not come into our barracks because of the fleas and the lice. And because of that, we were able to hold Bible studies twice a day. If you were caught without having a Bible study, it was instant death for you. And because my papa had us to read the Bible in different languages, we were able to translate the Bible to all the different nationalities that were there. 96,000 women died in that camp, including my sister. But many died with Jesus on our lips because God brought us to that place. I praise God for that. Once I did not have a handkerchief, and and my sister said, well, why don't you pray, ask the Lord for a handkerchief for you? And I say, 1,000 people being killed every day in this in camp, camp and and tortured, and I'm going to ask the Lord for a handkerchief? I said, no, I cannot. But my sister did. (laughs) And pretty soon there came a rapping on the door. It was a friend of mine with a package for me. And when I opened up the package, it was handkerchiefs. I said, how did you know that I needed handkerchiefs? She said, well, I was working on the sheets, and the Lord said to me, Corrie needs handkerchiefs. I tell you, the Lord cares about the little things as well. Yes. Oftentimes we would be in the roll call for hours in the cold, the bitter cold. And they were, before the sun came up, we, we would see the stars. And I looked up at the stars and I said, Lord, you have named all these stars. But you have forgotten Betsy and I. And Betsy said, no, God has not forgotten us. He said he would never leave or forsake us, no matter where we are. And he is right here with us. My sister was right. God's word was the thing that kept us sane, and that man made hell Ravensburg. My sister was always weak from childhood uh, illness that she had. She could not do the work that the, the guards would have her to do, and oftentimes they would beat her. And the other prisoners would hold me back, but I'd want to go and and attack the guards. And later, Betsy would say, Corey, you must not hate. You must pray for these people. You must love them. God cannot use a heart that is hateful, God cannot use a heart who hates. You must love them. I prayed that God would heal my sister. And with each day, she began to go weaker and weaker. At one row call, she was so weak, she could not get out of her bed. The guard says, put her on a stretcher and take her to the hospital. And we got the stretcher and put her on it. It took us forever to get to the hospital because every place we went, they would have to stop and they would kiss her and pray with her, the other guard, the other uh, prisoners. It was as they thought they would never see her again. When we arrived at the hospital, we took her in and and put her on the bed. They made me leave, but there was a window close to the bed, and every day I could come to the window and I would wave at her and and thumbs up to her. And then one morning I come and I, I see... Two nurses and they were lifting the sheet of the bed with something in the sheet, and I saw that it was—it was like a skeleton of a body. It was my sister. She was dead. I was devastated. I thought we would be released together, but I went to where the, they kept the bodies and I saw her face. There was a sense of peace. She was young again. And the joy on her face, and it reminded me that she is with the Lord. So I praise God for that. Several days later, my number 66730 was called, and they told me to go stand over there. And they began to call other names, and we were standing, and I was standing next to a young girl, and I said, What is your name? And she said, It's Tina. I said, Tina, what are we standing here for? She said, it's a death sentence. I say, well, Lord, if this is my day today, let me share with this little girl the hope that I have within me. I say, Tina, do you know about God? And she said, I know a little. Have you ever read the Bible? And she said, no. Do you know about Jesus Christ? She goes, no. I say to her, Tina, you are a sinner but God loves you so much he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ God born in the flesh to die for your sins and for my sins and if you will believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ you will live forever with him and before she could say anything she was called away and one by one the others were called away and I was left there standing and I began to pray Lord give me strength to go through this Then they came and they got me and they took me into the office where they handed me a piece of paper. And when I looked on the piece of paper, it said, released. Many years later, I would find out this was a blunder of man, a a clerical error, they say. But I tell you, it is the Lord who was not finished with me yet. For all the women one week later, all the women my age were killed. The Lord had not finished with me. As I was waiting to have the gates open to leave Ravensburg, a friend of mine whispered, "Cori," I said, "Yes." She go, "You know Tina?" I said, "Yes." She died today. Then she said to me, "But she trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior, and I praise God that she died with Jesus on her lips." I was able to leave that camp and make my way back into Holland which was still occupied by the Nazis. And I went to a hospital very near the border. They took care of me, gave me good food to eat. They gave me Brussels sprouts, meat and gravy, and currant uh, rice pudding and an apple. They, they brushed my hair, and they let me take a bath, and I slept on clean sheets for the first time. There was, there was a smell that was so beautiful there. And I had not seen so many colors. They just came alive to me. When I was well, I was able to get back to the Baye. And when I walked in, there was, there was a sadness in my heart. For my papa was gone. Betsy was gone. My, uh, my brother William was dying of tuberculosis of the spine from what he had contracted in the prison camp. And later we would find out that my nephew had died as well in the concentration camp. But then I remember what my papa say, we are a privileged family to be able to use to, be, to help God's people, and I praise God for that. I wanted to get back involved in the Dutch underground, but they say, no, the Gestapo is watching you. So I helped out in other ways. But in May of 1945, we were liberated. Holland was liberated. We came out of our homes, we thanked the Lord God, and we, we sang our hymns as we had never sang before, had not sung it in years. I remember when we were in prison camp, when, uh, when Betsy was still alive, and she said, she said, Corey, God has given me three visions. And we will fulfill these visions when we are released from this camp. She said, the first one will be for the German people, The second will be for the survivors of the concentration, the the Dutch survivors of the concentration camp, and the third will be for the world. She said, we must go and we must tell them what we have learned here. They will listen to us. They will listen to us. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. After the war, each one of these visions became true. For the Germans, we were able to rent out the, the uh, concentration camps. We tore down the barbed wire fences. We planted flowers. We planted the, the, painted the barracks beautiful bright colors, and we ministered to the German people there. For the Dutch survivors, there was a woman who gave us her mansion, and when she took me in to see it, it was just as my sister described it, right down to the parquet floors. And there we ministered to the Dutch survivors of the concentration camp. The third one, that summer I wrote my first book, A Prisoner and Yet. And because of this book, the world became my classroom. I traveled it over many, many times. One of my favorite places was in Russia. And I was speaking to a young girl in the park, and she was very afraid to talk with me. And I said, well, let's go back to my hotel room. We can talk there. She said, oh no, there are hidden microphones in the floor and then they tape what you say and they pass it to official, to official, to official. So I go back to my room and I sit on my bed and I say, Lord, you have brought me to Russia but I cannot speak to the people. I said, Lord, you must provide a way that I can speak to them. Then I noticed on the floor there was like a pepper box So I got on my knees, and I opened it up, and there was a hidden microphone. And I began to preach a little sermon to them. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. I say, "You, you Russians, you are like all people in the world. You have two things in common, sin and death. But I have in my hands the word of God, which has the answer to those two problems. And it is to the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth, God born in the flesh, to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And if you believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work he did to pay your debt that you couldn't pay, then you will live forever with him. Praise God. So every morning I get up and I give little sermon. <laughs> and they pass the tape on to official, to official, to official the Lord is good (laughs) (laughs) hallelujah when I was in Russia once I had just finished speaking and I was sitting down and there came a very tall man and about halfway, I recognized this man he was a guard from Ravensbrück one who was especially cruel to my sister and there came a hatred in my heart a bitterness and he came up to me and he said Fräulein Timbum, do you know who I am? I said, yes, I do. He said, Fräulein Timbum, I have become a Christian. I have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And he has forgiven me all my deeds. But I have asked him that I might see a victim of mine, that I might ask their forgiveness. He said, Fräulein Timbum, will you forgive me? But there was anger, hatred in my heart. And I said, Lord, I cannot forgive this man for he did to my sister. But I know that when there is hatred in my heart, God cannot use me. Then I praise God for Romans 5, five, For the love of God has been poured out into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. And I praise God that his love is greater than my hate. Amen. And I say to the Lord, I cannot forgive him, but you can forgive him through me. And I put my hand out, and he put his hand in mine, and I tell him, I forgive you with all of my heart, and I mean it. And there we stood for the long time, a former prisoner with a former guard. Only the Lord could do something like that. I tell you, when you tap into the ocean of God's forgiveness, you will experience his love as you have never experienced him before. My life is like a weaving between my Lord and me. I do not choose the colors that he worketh steadily. Of time he weaves sorrow and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is styling and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the silver weaver's hands as the threads in gold and silver in the pattern. He has planned. Our God does not have problems with our lives. He has plans with our lives. He likes to use small people to do great things. It is like the glove. The glove itself can do nothing. But only when the hand that is in the glove can it do something. We can do nothing of ourselves. Only when we have the Holy Spirit within us are we able to do what God has planned for us? And I praise God he has used me in this way. And it is to his glory. My Jewish friends have a word. It's shalom. They say shalom when they see you and they shalom when they say goodbye. It means God's peace. And I wish for you shalom. Shalom. And God's peace can only come through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I say to you, Shalom, my friends. Shalom.
0: a survivor victorious in august of 1978 corrie suffered her first major stroke and lost most of her ability to communicate as she once had she suffered a second stroke in may in 1979 and another in October 1980. The last five years of her life were silence, but her eyes still spoke of her love for her Lord Jesus Christ. Despite her infirmities, her voice is still being heard very clearly today on April fifteenth, 1983 her closest friends were circled around they were there to quietly celebrate her 91st birthday that evening about 11pm the best had come for Corey Tenboom. She went home to be with her Lord. In the Jewish tradition, it is said that only the very blessed people are allowed the special privilege of dying on their birthday, their eternal life day. Corey reminds us, Papa, Papa had always reminded his children, when Jesus takes your hand, he keeps it tight. When he keeps it tight, he leads you through life. And when he leads you through life, he brings you safely home. And Corey Ten Boom is safe at home. Her gravestone simply reads Jesus is the Victor, Corey Ten Boom, 1892 1983. Yes, God is to be praised and thanked for the life of Corey Ten Boom. Natalie you ready okay honey